Well, good morning, everyone. It's very good to see you. Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Colossians chapter 1, and in just a minute, I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. This is the second time we've been in it. It's appropriate that we take such careful thought through this, this part of Paul's letter. I think we're going to do the same thing in the next part in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It just stands a reason. It's hard to talk about Jesus Christ in just one Sunday. So I think we'll do that same, same thing. So let's hear the word of the Lord. This is verse 9, chapter 1, page 833 in our seat Bibles. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." Let's bow together and pray and ask God for the help that we need this morning. God and Father, we would pray this this morning that you would make this book live in us, that you would show us ourselves and show us our Savior and make this book live in us. In Jesus' name and for his sake that we ask these things this morning. Amen. Now, No doubt, there can't be any doubt, that as we consider this prayer of the Apostle Paul for now the second time, and Paul's asking God to fill them with knowledge of his will, you can quickly come to the conclusion that the heartbeat of this Apostle is all for Jesus Christ. Paul lived a life of self-denial and suffering that would break a thousand hearts. He understood The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Point of fact, on one occasion, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5.11, because of the fear of the Lord, I try to persuade men. The stimulus for Paul's evangelistic purposes is the fear of God, and that sets him on a way to see others to faith in Christ. People in general don't think like that anymore, and so it's no surprise that we don't speak or live like that anymore. Nevertheless, Paul is telling us here that right conduct for God is always and only the characteristic of right knowledge about God. G.I. Packer, writing in a way that only he can, said this, God leads in paths of righteousness and nowhere else. God's guidance never violates God's word. God's guidance will never lead to irresponsible decisions or actions. He guides to choose by the exercise of Christ-likeness, God-honoring, far-seeing wisdom that always aims at what pleases God best. 
clearly then that the the apostle had no desire for some kind of shallow knowledge about God for the Colossian church that would simply serve as a kind of smoke screen or a a thin veneer of self-serving religious observances. To Paul, knowledge about God was the indispensable prerequisite, those are two big words, the indispensable prerequisite of living a life pleasing to God. And he knows what we all should know, that no man and no woman and no young person, no matter how committed they are, no matter how talented they are, no matter how serious they are about Jesus Christ, no man, woman, or young person can call these things up out of themselves on their own. Therefore, Paul prays for these things because as we keep saying, and we'll say it again, that Paul knows what we should know, that we are completely dependent on God for everything and we express that dependence in prayer. And when we neglect prayer, we neglect God. And prayer, this in prayer and thanksgiving is always the deportment, the right deportment so that there isn't any kind of self-congratulations on any victory that we have that God himself gives. And that's what we discovered last time. Paul thanked God for these Christians, verse 9. And right after he thanked them, he prays immediately to God for them. Since the day I heard about you, so he immediately goes to God. He prays immediately, then he goes continually. Verse 9b, we have not stopped praying for you. Immediately, continually, and he prays specifically. Verse 9 is far more than a bless them, lead them, guide them prayer that we could all say, you know, with one hand tied behind our back. Verse 9c, God, fill them with knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. And we explained that in this prayer, Paul was not asking God to give them new knowledge. You know, that was the problem of the Colossian heretics who kept saying, there's more, there's more. And we have secret rites. We have angelic connections. We have a kind of a bohemian lifestyle or camps you can go to that will get you to the place of spiritual fitness and fullness. No, Paul was not asking for new knowledge. He was asking, if you would, the precious, plain, old knowledge that was given to them, verse 5b, when they first heard the word of truth, the gospel of Christ. You see, loved ones, genuine faith is alive in Christ. When we become Christians, we're not reformed, we're not remodeled, we are not rehabilitated, we are new creations, And genuine faith has vital evidences that that come out of it that are far more than just an intellectual nod to God. So when you think about this, you have to think biblically. John tells us that Jesus was filled with the Spirit without limit. And later on, Paul will tell us that, that we are filled. If we are Christians, we are filled with Jesus who is filled with the Spirit without limit. So it stands the reason that Paul asked God to give them knowledge of his will by means of spiritual wisdom. And we said spiritual wisdom was essentially thinking biblically, was thinking theologically, was thinking about doctrine first, a mind always anchored in gospel truth. And once God gave that to them, he asked for a spiritual understanding so that they can make application of those truths in the life that they've been given. In other words, Paul was praying that they would see all things as God sees them in order that they might live a life as God would have them. And to constrain our waywardness, to constrain our worldliness, our old nature that, that has the most 
I think, the most fascinating ability to promote our own causes and go our own way. Paul prays a prayer which is calculated to promote humility and control the flesh. And in that prayer, he lays down a necessary, authorized framework of what a life lived in God's will exactly looks like. And we, we should be thankful for that. So we don't have to ponder what it is. So Paul tells them this is what a life lived in God's will, in principle, will exactly look like. Because I think we're always tempted to do what they did in the time of the judges. Remember, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Evangelical Christianity is super good when people come out and say, this is a marriage, and we say, no, no, marriage is defined by, don't you dare change that definition. And so Paul is doing the same thing here. This is what a Christian life looks like. No, no, don't anyone here change that definition at all. I'm gonna tell you exactly what, in principle, the Christian life should look like, which takes us right to our first heading, the life we ought to live. The standard there first, there, verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. The phrase live a life is translated your walk. It has to do with your conduct, our deportment, the way we carry ourselves in this world. The word worthy means to recognize what is fitting. And so you put these together and you think about this phrase, it stands to reason that the obedience that Christians practice is an absolutely useless obedience unless it gives to the watching world a picture of our Lord, a picture of his authority, of his worthiness, and his purpose in humanity. At home, we're rereading now. I think this is the third time uh, Pilgrim's Progress. I can't help it. I love the book. And on Thursday night, we got to the part of the worldly wise man. And we just can't stand that guy. Because the only reason why he was good, he was good for himself. He was good for goodness sake. His good had no gospel ring to it at all. He was only good so that everybody could say, wow, you are really good. So for example, to live in silence in our particular circumstances to those who do not know Christ is to live in a manner unworthy of the Lord. To live in disunity with others and in the church is to live in a manner unworthy of the Lord. To live in impurity is to live in a manner unworthy of the Lord. To live in rejection of the Lordship of Jesus Christ is to live in a manner unworthy of the Lord. And so if we take those phrases and we flip those things, we can see more clearly what it means to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. In fact, the Bible gives us a couple of examples. I'll give you two. Ephesians chapter four. This is what Paul says. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. And this is what Paul says to do. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. That's one example. Here's another example, Romans 12. This is a life worthy of the Lord. Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, Paul spends 11 chapters telling us of the gospel of grace. And then he says in verse, or chapter 12, because of this, offer your bodies as a living sacrifices, sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper and reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't do what they do and live for what they love, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll able to be able to test what is God's will, his good and perfect and pleasing will. 
Therefore, it becomes very important to understand to, to live in a manner worthy of the Lord involves far more than just learning about the Lord and involves obedience to the Lord in our bodies. You see, Paul's prayer is that the knowledge they have about God will be transformed into character and conduct and deportment that is worthy of God. In other words, behave as if you lived in heaven. That's the prayer, the Lord's prayer, right? On earth as it is in heaven. So what does a heavenly life look like? Well, take that life and live your earthly life to that same end. So that when someone says to us or we say to ourselves, I know God, the strength of their statement will not be on, on, the, on the breadth of their knowledge. It will be in the depth of their Christian living. Living a life worthy of of the Lord. And this is unlike any other discipline. I mean, think of it this way. Someone could be a super farmer, but a moral disaster. He'll still be a good farmer. He'll still be a good farmer, but he's still a moral disaster. You could be an excellent business person, but a moral disaster. Nonetheless, that doesn't stop the lady from being good at business. However, the Bible gives really no pass here. For the Christian, there is to be no dividing line between vocational competence and moral character. Because what we are and what we do is essentially the same. The interest of God is not only in what we are, but he's interested in what we do. Because what we are will always, always affect what we do. So, so to live a life worthy of the Lord is to reflect that Jesus is Lord at all points of our life, are frankly, the whole thing is a scam. The whole thing is a scam. Secondly, Paul says, give them knowledge of your will so that they, verse 10b, please him in every way. Please him in every way. Every way? <laughs> he says to himself, everything? Yes, every way the Bible says back to him. You're gonna like this. Greek scholars tell us the word that Paul used for please was always used in a negative labeling of those who were essentially people who cringed before other men. It was essentially a man pleaser. So the word in, our, in English is often translated creepy. So think of this in the ancient world, right? I know. The creepy person was always kind of pandering to a man, a mere man or a mere woman. And it was like, how can I help you? What can I do for you? Let me help you. But the whole reason why they were doing that was for personal motives. So they were serving men to either protect themselves or to elevate themselves. So Paul takes that word and he kind of baptizes it and he uses it for good and holy use. Pleasing Christ. The most highest compliment that we can be given is, there goes a Christ pleaser, right? Hanley Moe which has a name only a mother could love, right? Hanley Moe, he's a commentator, and he wrote this. The phrase, please him in every way, he translated as, unto every anticipation of Christ's will. Now, do you understand this? What is God's will? What is God's will? It is to please Jesus Christ in everything. No speck of our existence. No, no compartmentalizing in every way. Jesus has the first word, the only word in everything. And to every anticipation of Christ's will. How can I help you? What, what can I do for you? Let me help you, Jesus. Let me decide for you first and only. Question. Hey, don't you think that's a little over the top? It's kind of, you know, that's kind of a radical answer. In a song, we sing this song frequently. 
where the whole realm of nature mine, that be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Loved ones, that perhaps means for some of us a whole lot more yeses for Jesus Christ. And it certainly means how and what pleases Christ must work itself out in our Christian living and in Christ's church. Remember my cousin from last week? Those of you who were here last week, my cousin Gregory, which we called no-no. We can't be Gregory. No-no to Jesus. We have to be yes-yes. Again, the highest compliment is to be a Jesus pleaser. Our default and our old nature is what? It is to ourselves. It's fashioning a life pleasing to ourselves first. Not to be unkind, but a two-year-old can fashion a life pleasing to themselves. It takes almost no intellect at all to, to fashion a life pleasing to ourselves. It takes absolutely no spiritual power at all to fashion a life pleasing to ourselves. There's a fancy word that people from the high street throw around. It's called existentialism. And an existentialist is typically perceived by the world as someone who's got it going on. They're very intelligent, very smart. But let me tell you what an existentialist is. An existentialist is this, to live with a passion for the now only for yourself. Because existentialists think that we should begin with ourselves and everything. And the basis of every choice that we have and every decision that we make is always to begin with ourselves. That's base, base knowledge. I mean, you should say that with a grunt. Because it takes no intellect, it takes no spiritual power to choose for ourselves first. That's why Paul prays. Now, sometimes in a group, whatever group it may be, the group settles on a standard that, is, that eventually is measured by what the lowest common denominator in that group is. So, so the individuals in that group base their how are we doing question comparing themselves to the lowest standard of a particular person in the group. And they do that typically because they come out looking swell, right? When we want to feel good about ourselves, right or wrong, typically we compare ourselves to the worst possible person that we can think of and we come out looking stellar. But as clever as that may or may not be, other people are not the standard for God's dearly loved children. The word of God sets the standard. The Lord Jesus Christ is the standard. That is why prayer is absolutely vital. In prayer, the power that we need to do God's revealed will comes to us. And as you're thinking about this, isn't it, isn't it a wonderful thing to please Jesus Christ in every way? Isn't it? Isn't it a wonderful thing to plan out a day, a week, a life within the framework? How can I please him? Have you ever lived with a person like that? For two months out of my life, I lived with my wife's grandmother and she treated me like a, like a king for two months. And it was like everything that I needed, she just popped up with. I had holes in my socks. They were fixed. I had dirty clothes. They were washed, even my undies. Sorry about that, but you needed to say that. You'd come home at 8.30 and there was a plate of food for you. I mean, in my household, you only get that one day of the week and that's your birthday. 
On your birthday, you could say, give me this, give me that, I need that. And, and the people in the house will do it for you. You try that on the day after your birthday, that's not working. Is this our posture? Is this our posture? Utter submission to Jesus Christ. The standard is not how people are doing it now. The standard is the word. The standard is Jesus Christ. We need to go on, but, but teach this to yourself and remind yourself if you need to. The desire to live a life worthy of the Lord is not centered on and pleasing him, is not centered on the satisfaction that it may bring to us. Because that is man-centered and it's all too common. So yes, you might feel good about doing good for Jesus, but that, that is not the standard. That is not the center of our satisfaction. The basis of our yeses and nos, or excuse me, yeses to Christ always have to be, does this please Christ? And then we live with the fallout. Sometimes wonderful feelings, sometimes Difficult feelings, to live in a a way that is pleasing to Jesus in every way is a hard phrase. It makes me cling to the gospel. I mean, sometimes we do things that are misunderstood and people are not pleased, but Jesus Christ is pleased. And so we have to live with the fallout. Thirdly, still in verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. I love that phrase, bearing fruit in every good work. There's There's no waste here. In this one phrase, we ask, what good works do we do for Jesus Christ? And then doing those good works, we bring in the spoils of our good works to Jesus in his name. A long time ago, there was a lady named Katie Booth. She, she was the daughter of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. She, Katie, she won thousands of people to Jesus Christ, and she had very wide acclaim when she was living in Europe. So she would go places, and people particularly, particular places, they would know who she was. Well, one day she was on a train and a gentleman noticed her and he wanted to impress her. And so he said in kind of like a bursting way, I go to church every week. So she looked at him and only, I think only ladies can get away with this. She looked at him and said, is that all you do? Is that all you do for a dying world is go to church? Now, if we're honest, going to church every week is a chore for some of us. It doesn't have to be, but it is. But, but the point here is this. The point of good works, the scripture tells us, is at least four things. Because you can't just say something like this without having some backing, right? It's to be stressed in the church. Good works are to be stressed. They're to be done. It involves money. And it will bring God glory. So just listen to your Bible. Good works are to be stressed. Titus 2.8. Paul to Titus. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to Doing what is good. So they're to be stressed. They're to be done. Ephesians 2.10. After Paul spends a couple of great verses telling us that we're saved by grace through faith. Paul says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, God's providence has plans for us in good works. They involve to a degree money. 2 Corinthians 9, remember this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And listen to this, verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Therefore, loved ones, 
we have to understand that God never made anybody rich so that they simply may have more than everybody else. God made them rich so they can do good with it, so they can do good works. Good works are to be stressed, they're to be done, it involves money, and it will bring glory to our Father. We know the scripture, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men, let them see your good works, and praise your Father in heaven, which every good child wants. Every good child wants people to really think great about their dad. Christian children should want people to think great about our heavenly father. So Paul says, God, give them knowledge of your will so they would live a life worthy of Christ, pleasing Jesus Christ in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, and fourthly, growing or increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul kind of goes full circle and takes us back to where we began, the knowledge of God, advancing in the knowledge of God. This is the test of true knowledge. Because knowledge of God is both the starting point and the resulting attribute of a God-pleasing life. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, essentially, you can't preach if you won't learn. And learning about God will never end in this body. So it's the same thing here. We will not know by nature how to live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing the Lord and bearing good fruit. We will not know by nature on our own. We need a knowledge of God. So here's the link that Paul wants us to have. Belief and behavior, our creed and our conduct. And Paul right now is kind of seeking balance in this prayer. Balance to be really good in belief and to be really good in behavior, to be really good in our creed and our theology, and to be really good in our conduct. Sometimes, not too frequently, but when someone calls me that's, that I don't know, a lot of times I'll ask our, our secretary, what were their manners like? Because I'll listen to what their gospel is, but I kind of want to know what their manners are. And this makes sense to me. Let me just think of it this way. Okay, because I think we can think of it this way. Your neighbor has a whole mess of snow. It's pretty basic in his driveway, right? He doesn't have a plow. He has a shovel. You have a plow. It's a wonderful thing. Okay, so you want to go over there with a Bible in your hand and a sermon in your heart from Colossians about being strengthened with all power. Odds are that he probably won't give a rip about what what you want to say to him unless you use some of your God-given strength to help him. So you go over there with the snow plow on your person, your Bible in your back pocket, fire up the snow plow, be really good with it, and go, go, go. And I can guarantee you, you'll probably get a better ear when you take the Bible out of your pocket and ask if I can just tell you about the sermon that's in my heart. So, so Paul isn't praying for Christian frogs, right? Big heads and little bodies. Yeah, big brains, but no activity. He isn't praying for Christian whales, you know, big bodies, but really small brains, because whales have very small brains. He doesn't want zeal without knowledge. He wants balance. He wants a lot, doesn't he? As I was writing this out Friday morning, early Friday morning, I was thinking about this, about the phrase Christian burnout. You hear it on occasion frequently. I just want to tell you this, that this phrase Christian burnout is something you will never find in Christian books and Christian sermons until you get to the midpoint of the 20th century. And right around then, you start to hear this term being thrown around, Christian burnout. In other words, I think it's a concoction. 
But what you do read in those old books and those old uh, sermons, pre-burnout era, we'll call it, is about mortifying the flesh, killing off the old nature, dying to self. Why? Because these things get in the way of accomplishing God's revealed will. How are we going to live a life worthy of the Lord, please Him in every way, good works, growing in the knowledge of God? Because these are the great principles of what it means to live under the umbrella of God's will. Okay, so if you're thinking and you're honest, you're going to go, holy cow, we're going to need some power, right? Well, that takes us right to our second point. Our first point was a life we ought to live. The second, the power God gives to live it. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power. I love that phrase, phrase, all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Peter Kreft wrote a fantastic book. It's called Making Choices. He has a chapter, it's near the end of the book, and it's entitled, You Can't Do It Without Power. And in the chapter, he simply says what the Bible says and what Jesus says. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if Jesus was just a mere man, that would be very arrogant. Jesus is much more than a man. He is all power. He is all authority. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So we need power. And Paul is saying, passe dunamai. I like that phrase. It's Greek phrase. All power. All power. Now just think with me just for a minute. What is all power? Well, all power is, is the power that raised Christ from the dead. All power is the power that called this world into existence and things emanated out of the voice of God. The power that that puts wicked men and wicked women in their place. The power that preserves our life. The power that awoken our dead, dead heart. Loved ones, we can never ever estimate the power of God. So, So what is your problem? What is your need? Ladies and gentlemen, what is your bondage? Who is your God? Who is your God? Who has held the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Behold our God seated on his throne. Come let us adore him. Behold our King. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. The very first time I ever heard that song, it put me to tears and it made me repent. It put me to tears because it's absolutely true. It made me repent because I forgot how big our God is. All power. And God's power here works itself out in a patient power. What does Isaiah say? They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. This is the power to suffer long. We spoke of this last time. Great endurance and patience with joy because often doing God's revealed will and being in God's will will put you in very difficult circumstances. So this is the power we need to keep doing the right thing over and over again. And it demands endurance that only God can give. And you'll notice there, if your Bibles are open, that God's all power is according to his glorious might. 
Now, I'm sure you've thought of this. this. This power then is not kind of like just parceled out. That's too human, right? We like to keep our stuff and we kind of parcel it out as, as best we can. But this is according to, corresponding with, to the same degree of God's power. To the same degree of God's power, God, give us that power that we need to live that holy life that you just told us what it was in verse 10. And we need to think about our context here, right? To that degree. Think about Jesus. What kind of power did Jesus have? Well, this is the kind of power that Jesus had. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Okay, how was Christ able to endure that part of God's revealed will for his life? How how did Jesus do that? He was strengthened by all power. I I call this the right side of power. Because the, the, the left side of power is like, you know, power. Ah, I'm the greatest person that's ever lived. Look what I got, power. Ah, look at me, listen to me, power. Okay, this is the right side of power. This is patience and suffering in the midst of total treachery. This is the restraint this is power in the life of Christ. They, they dress him up. They rammed a crown of thorns in his head. They spat on his face. They undressed him. They turned him into kind of like a circuit, circus freak show. And on the cross, he didn't cry out, get them, God. Show them, God. What did he cry out? He said, forgive them, God, because they don't know what they're doing. What is that? That is all power. Well, how is it working itself out? With great endurance. And great patience. So again, let's not make the mistake of thinking only on a worldly human level about power. Because typically our first reaction when, when wrong is done to us is too much. I will show them. I'll, I'll get it right. I will fight for myself. How dare they? But this is not the power that Jesus is talking about. This is meekness. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. So again, God's power is a steadiness to continue on, to preserve, despite the suffering, despite the loss, despite the opposition, despite the disappointments and the setbacks, to keep doing the right thing for the glory of God until until we're dead. And we're going to need God's power to do that. It's hard, but I think that's why Paul uses the word thankfulness and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. John Stott, we human beings seem to suffer from chronic ingratitude, a poor return for the kindness we receive. The psalmist wrote, it is a joyful thing to be thankful to our God. Now we're almost done. I want you to think about this. Is this not true that our happiest days on this earth as a Christian are typically drenched with an overwhelming thankful bent for everything that God has done and everything that God is doing, and everything that God is planning for us in his heaven. Isn't that true? The best days are always the days we just gush out thankfulness to what God has done. The life we ought to live, verse 10, the power God gives to live it. Verse 11, now verse 12 and 13, we'll just fly through this. We'll pay more attention to this next week. The gospel breaks the tension in it. Because there is tension. I can just feel it now. The, the tension we feel. The, the gap between what we are now and what we ought to be. 
And then God gives power to close that gap. God gives power. So this is not something on, on based on what we do or fail to do. This is power vested in the gospel. That's why Paul writes verses 12 and 13 and 14. What more could God give us than what he gave us in the gospel? So there's a tension there. John Newton describes this tension. He said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not what I used to be. And here's why. Look at your Bible, verses 12 and 13. They're all, both of them are written in the past tense. The gift is complete. It's all there right from the beginning. As soon as you said yes to Jesus, it's all there. Does it need to be developed? Absolutely, but it's all there. The assurance of heaven, all there. The fullness of the Holy Spirit, all there. The forgiveness of all our sins, all there. The power to live a holy life, it's all there. There are no half measures with God. There are no half measures with God. It's all there in the gospel. Why? Verse 12, the Father has qualified us. He did what we could not do for ourselves. No matter how good we are, we could not qualify ourselves to be right with God. Verse 13, the Father has rescued us because the Son has redeemed us from our sins that separated us from God. So right now as a Christian, we are part of the kingdom. We've been released from the dark powers. We are not under the power of evil at all anymore if we are a Christian. In fact, If Paul's prayer could be summed up in one simple sentence, I think this is what it would be. Father, please give them the power to be what they are already. Father, please give them the power to be what they are already. That's what he's saying. Be what you are. Every day work. Be what you are. Okay, so who am I? And with this we'll close. This is who I am. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm qualified by God to share an royal inheritance. I've been rescued from my own treachery. I've been rescued from the kingdom of evil. The dark world holds no sway over me any longer. I am not the helpless victim of fate or chance or economic forces or social forces or my own personal heredity. I'm not even a, a victim of my own sin. I am God's. I am God's own, therefore, with Christ's power, I will be what I am. I will be what I am in the kingdom of God's Son and the kingdom of light. If you're in Christ, that's our home. That's where we dwell right now. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together and pray. Our God and Father, we would thank you for the preciousness of your word. I think, God, what we'll do this week is what we did last week, and we'll say this prayer. We ask you, God, to fill us with knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And Father, we pray this in order that we would live a life worthy of you and please you in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, and being strengthened with your mighty power according to your glorious might so that we would have great endurance and patience and be joyful and give thanks to you, Father, because you have rescued us from the dominion of darkness and you have brought us into the forever kingdom, the kingdom of the Son you love, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and in whose name we pray now.
Amen.